0: to LinkedIn for supporting Motley Fool Answers. LinkedIn Jobs makes it easy to get matched with quality candidates who make the most sense for your role. Post a job today at linkedin.com/fool and get $50 off your first job post. This is Motley Fool Answers, I'm Alison Southwick and I'm joined as always by Robert Brocamp, personal finance expert here at the Motley Fool. Hi. In this week's episode, it's the next in our series for tackling big life events. And this time, we're going to talk about tips for an amicable divorce with Motley Fool Wealth Planner, Amanda Kish. All that and more on this week's episode of Motley Fool Answers. So, bro, what's up?
1: Well, Allison, last week we discussed the high prices of prescription drugs with Leaf Purvis of AARP, and one takeaway from that was, better save a lot of money so you can afford the to cover all that. Drugs are too damn that. high. That's right. But there are some other ways to at least try to limit the cost of that, and that is be in good shape, so you reduce the chances that you need any medications or medical care. So that's what we're going to talk a little bit for our What's Up, Bro this week. Uh, and I'm going to talk first of all about an article by Paul Brandis on MarketWatch.com with the excellent subhead: "Want to retire well? Your personal trainer may be as important as your financial advisor." So he included a couple of examples of folks who try to stay in shape. Here's the workout, followed by Joyce Field, who three days a week does this. So she has a 30-minute warm-up. She does uh, cross-trainer machine, ab exercise, stretches, wall push-ups. Then comes Johnny the trainer, and they do mountain climbers, resistant bands, weight machines, squats, and burpees. And then she closes with three reps of 60-second planks with a 45-pound weight on her back. You know, uh, want to know how old Joyce is?
0: Oh, old enough to make me feel really bad about myself.
1: 86 years old. Good for her! When did she begin doing all this? When she was seventy-eight.
0: Oh, wow! Right.
1: Oh, another fun fact from that article: the number of people aged seventy and older who are doing triathlons—it's the biking, running, and swimming—it's up one hundred and sixty-eight percent since two thousand nine. Pretty impressive. So, it's never too late to start, and there are plenty of studies that back this up, including one from last summer uh, by Gretchen Reynolds of the New York Times. She highlighted this in her article: exercise makes the aging heart more youthful. And so basically what this study did was take a bunch of sedentary middle-aged people, run them through various exercises four or five times a week. One of those sessions was strenuous, but otherwise it was pretty easy, mostly just walking around and things like that. Sure enough, after two years, the exercises were in better shape, specifically, and here's the quote from the article, the left ventricles in the exercise's heart muscles were stronger and less stiff than the, than at the start of the study. Hmm. Their hearts, in effect, were more youthful now, even though they really hadn't done much exercise up to that point. So that's very encouraging. But a more recent article by Reynolds showed that how much the benefits of exercise last even after you've stopped exercising. And she basically discussed a study that was published in April that revisited a study that ended in 2003. So go back to 2003 and this study took people between the ages of 40 and 60. They were all overweight. They were all um, basically sedentary. Broke them into three groups. The control group did nothing. One group that did moderate exercise, mostly walking and things like that, and then another group did more vigorous exercise, similar to jogging. After eight months of doing these things, you can guess what happened, of course. Mm -hmm. The people who were doing some exercise were better on all kinds of factors, such as aerobic fitness, blood pressure, insulin sensitivity, and waist circumference. But the recent study basically went back to these pe- people a decade li- later and said, would you like to do a little reunion study? And there were more than 100 of them and said, yes, let's do it. So they looked at these people. Some of them continued to exercise. A lot of them didn't. But those from the control group, the folks who did nothing, just basically got worse. Most had lost about 10% of their aerobic capacity, which is typical. Apparently, after age 40, we lose about 1% of our fitness annually. How depressing is that? <laughs> <laughs> but those men and women who had exercised vigorously for eight months retained substantially more fitness. Huh. And this is ten years after the study. Crazy. On average, the aerobic capacity had fallen only about five percent compared to where they had when they had joined the study. And those few who were still exercising four times a week, they were in better shape today than they were more than a decade ago when they started the study. Wow. Even though they're ten years older. Yes. Uh, the walkers in the study from the early 2000s uh, lost about as much aerobic capacity as the control group, but on measures of meta- metabolic health, they were still in better shape. And that is stuff like blood pressure, insulin sensitivity, hmm. things like that. So, in the words of Dr. William Krauss, professor of medicine and cardiology at Duke, who oversaw this new study, he said, Exercise is a powerful modulator of health, and some effects can be quite enduring. And that, Allison, is what's up.
0: When it's time to make a hire for your small business, naturally you want to find the best person for the job. And odds are, that person is on LinkedIn. Here at Motley Fool, we know that making the right hire makes all the difference. When you make the wrong hire, you're not only wasting your own time and the company's money, but you've missed out on all the great work that right hire would have done. So LinkedIn Jobs makes it easy to get matched with quality candidates who make the most sense for your role. LinkedIn Jobs uses knowledge of both hard skills and soft skills to match you with the people who fit the role the best. And customers rate LinkedIn Jobs number one in delivering quality job opportunities. Post a job today at LinkedIn.com/fool and get fifty dollars off your first job post. That's LinkedIn.com/fool. Terms and conditions apply. It comes final today. So, yes, it's time once again for the next in our series of tackling major money life events. And so today we are joined by Amanda Kish. She is a financial planner with Motley Fool Wealth Management.
1: Oh, a sister company of the Motley Fool. I
0: thought you'd be ready for that. I uh,
1: know. I was gonna comment that Amanda is like one of the most qualified people at the Motley Fool because she's not only a CFP, but a CFA as well. I think you're the only one at the company who has both those designations, right? I
2: think there's one other person. Really, <laughs> what's not, the we're, difference?
1: We're a rare breed. CFP is all the financial planning stuff. Difficult. Mm-hmm. Take a series of classes, but one hard exam. CFA, man, that's three exams, and that level two is tough. Brutal. Yeah. Are so you not a CFA? You no, know, I'm just a regular old CFP.
0: Oh, why? Why do we even have you on the show?
1: I know. I just
0: move over.
1: Eye candy. I think that's the only reason. Yeah. <laughs> <for the reason>. <laughs> she laughs at
0: <laughs> Well, Amanda, thank you for joining us. So um, we already got a little bit of your bio, but why don't you tell us a little bit more about how you came to be a planner with The Motley Fool? Because you've been with The Motley Fool for a while in, in different capacities. Yes,
2: yeah, so I've been with The Fool in various capacities for about 12 years. Um, so after I got my MBA in finance, I started off working at an asset management firm in the Rochester area. Uh, then I started out here as a writer, um, started taking over uh, the Champion Fund Investment Newsletter many years ago. Uh, I worked with Bro on Rule Your Retirement for many years. Uh, And then four years ago, I transitioned over to Motley Fool Wealth Management as a planner. So that's what I've been doing ever since. So I wear many hats.
1: And she's also the latest member of our 401k committee. Welcome, Amanda. Thank you so much. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Is there like some secret initiation that happens or anything like that? Yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah. What happens on the 401k committee stays on the 401k committee.
2: Exactly.
0: All right. Well, we have asked you to come in and help tackle the topic of divorce. And particularly, you're going to walk us through, as much as possible, how to have an amicable divorce. Um, And you are going to be speaking a bit from personal experience, but also from your experience as a planner.
2: Exactly. Um, So what I'm going to talk about are my five top tips for having an amicable divorce. Um, And I'll preface this. I'm I'm not a lawyer. So uh, these are just my experiences, again, as you said, personal uh, and and my experience from uh, my financial planning work. So. The uh, top tip that I would start off with would be to remember that more than anything, your divorce is a business transaction. Um, So really you need to think of it as a business partnership that you are unwinding um, that, that just didn't work out. So it's very important to keep the emotion out of it. Um, it's a, a difficult shift for some people, but when you're talking about um, the divorce proceedings, you need to recognize that now y- your spouse very likely no longer has your best interest in mind, so you really need to be your own advocate and be present um, in the in the entire process. If you have a lawyer, certainly that's someone that's going to be able to advocate for you, um, but you need to be there. You need to be um, fully present um, in order to let your lawyer do um, his or her best job. Um, Some mistakes that I have seen people make in the divorce process uh, is letting those emotions get involved and letting that cloud their judgment as far as the whole business part of it goes. Um, I've seen cases where a client would say, Um, You know, I'm just I'm tired of fighting. I don't care. You know, let her take what she wants. I don't want to deal with this. I just want to get this done as quickly as possible. I don't care whatever it costs, whatever it takes. Um, I've seen cases where someone has said, uh, you know, taken the attitude of, well, you know, he's more concerned about the money. I'm not that selfish. So I'm not going to fight him because, you know, I'm a better person and, you know, I'm going to be more noble and suffer. Um, And those are both you know, reasonable uh, defense mechanisms, I guess, in ways of coping, but they don't help with the, the ultimate business of coming to the table and negotiating for, for what's in your best interest. So it's best to keep that clarity. Does um, it
0: help to... Um Go like have go see a therapist in a way to like so you're like okay this is my money side but I also need to take care of my emotional side and maybe I can work out some of that emotion with a therapist to leave me a little bit more clearer when I'm dealing with my lawyer, <laughs> for example.
2: Yep, and that's actually one of my points for later on uh, is dealing with the emotional side so you can uh, be a little bit more present um, for dealing with the the financial side of things.
1: Yeah, and it, it's, that's sometimes difficult advice to follow because it's, it can be such an emotionally draining experience that you might be tempted to just like, I just want to get this over yeah. with as soon mm-hmm. as possible. In my parents' case, their divorce w- was prompted by also my my dad's business failing. So there were all kinds of things going on and I've seen that in other divorces as well. There's something else going on that sort of... Is sort of the, if not the straw, is the straw or the bale that breaks the camel's back <laughs> that brings the marriage to an end. So it's often not just the divorce that's happening. So it's so much turmoil and people are like, I just want to get this done. Then years later, you realize, oh, I wish I didn't rush that.
2: Yeah, absolutely. You don't you don't get a do-over. Um, so you do want to take your time and make sure that you're making decisions that are right, um, not only in the near term, but in the long term. So a lot of folks look at it and say, you know, what do I need to do in the next couple of weeks or months to get to, to D-Day when I sign the papers and not necessarily thinking about, you know, how is that going to affect you 10 or 20 years down the road? Um, so for an example, if a, a client may say, you know, I all I want is I want to keep the house because I want to keep my uh, I want stability for my kids. I don't want them to change school districts. Um, he can have everything else. I'm not going to worry about that. That may not be the best decision if you're then stuck with a house that you can't afford and you're draining financial assets to you know to support that. So you need to consider not only now and today and the day after the divorce, but also a decade or two down the road.
0: So I think when people find themselves uh, facing a divorce their first reaction is, I need a lawyer. Is that the, the right reaction?
2: Um, it- That is a good thing to think. Um, You may not necessarily need a lawyer at least to start off with. Um, So that kind of leads into my second point. Um, I would highly recommend exploring all the different options that you have for uh, going through the divorce process. Um, So for example, uh, in my personal experience when I was divorced, we used a mediator. So basically what the mediator does is um, they sit down with each party in the room, they hammer out all the details of the the uh, separation, splitting up assets, liabilities. Um, Their job is to just make sure that each person's heard, that they come to a fair and equitable agreement. Their role is not to be an advocate for either person or to offer any legal advice. In most cases, they're not a lawyer. So that uh, in, in in our situation, that made sense because our divorce was uh, fairly simple. Uh, we didn't have the complication of kids. Um, most of our finances were not t- too terribly intertwined, so it was just a question of um, our primary residence of how we were going to um, to split that up. We had already decided I would be keeping that, um, so it was just a question of hammering out how much I was going to to pay out. So, you know, when when you're talking about uh, a divorce people's um, standard of living, it's almost always going to decline, um, unfortunately. So if there's anything you can do kind of on the front end to to mitigate those um, expenses that you're going to be spending and legal fees, um, I would recommend doing that. So looking at mediation is one possible way to do that. If you have a more, um, you know, amicable relationship, things are fairly simple. That's not going to be possible for every person. Um, Your situation is going to be unique um, if you have concerns that, you know, there's complicated custody issues or um, family business or you're concerned you're uh, spouse is hiding assets, um, then that's where you really want to get a lawyer and on board. Uh, and I'll also say that even with mediation, you can still employ the services of a lawyer. You can consult with one before, during, after, um, just to make sure that you understand the law, your rights. You're not um, you're not um, missing anything. Um, but then if you find that uh, mediation is not right for you. There's a step above that before you kind of go all, you know, full out shark lawyer. Um, It's a process called collaborative divorce where each spouse um, would team up with a lawyer, sit down in a room with the four of them, and work out those same details similar to how you would in mediation. So that's just something that can be a little bit more uh, or a little bit less aggressive uh, and a little bit... um, Easier on everybody involved, and can keep some of the costs down if you're not, um, you know, fighting with each other and worrying about necessarily going to court.
0: And we talked um, before the show started about how in Virginia you have to be like separated before a year before you can even get like officially divorced. You have to be legally separated. And where you're from in New York, you know, you can just go get a divorce. I make that sound much easier than it is, but yes, yeah. <laughs> um, to oversimplify it. Uh, are most of the Laws around divorce set at a state level that you that you need someone to help you navigate it, or is a mediator still going to be like, yeah, yeah, no, I got this, um, and understanding the laws necessarily.
2: Yes, so um, divorce law is. Uh state-specific, so you will need to know that. A mediator is going to know the laws in the state that they're operating in. Again, they're not a lawyer, um, but they'll know what needs to be done. Um, In my case, we used a mediator and then looped a lawyer in kind of at the last minute for for signing everything. So you'll probably have some contact with a legal professional of some kind. Um, And again, it's, it's never a bad idea to make sure you know what's going on. It's we said earlier, you don't, you don't get a do-over. Yeah. Um, so make sure you understand you know everything um, the first time and, and, and get it right.
0: All right, let's move on to your next point, which is to get everything in writing.
2: Yes, document, document, document. Um, so one of the first things that you'll do when you start the separation process, you're going to want to get a documentation of all of your assets. So you'll be pulling copies of uh, bank accounts, um, statements, credit card accounts, investment accounts, 401ks, uh, as well as things like a recent year's tax returns, uh, insurance policies, health insurance, deeds for any um, real estate that you own, uh, and it's important to have a full accounting of everything to um, have all the assets, liabilities, and income um, to, be, to be separated out in an equitable manner. Um, and kind of along with that, the, um, the aspect of having everything in writing. As you can imagine, when it comes to divorce, um, when there's money and hard feelings involved, um, there's definitely room for some uh, shady behavior sometimes. And that can bring out, that whole process can bring out the worst and even the best of people at times. So it really helps um, to not leave anything. Uh, vital as just a verbal agreement so you don't run into troubles later. So whether that's discussing how much money in your checking account each of you are going to take or where the kids are going to spend their holidays, um, it's important to have that documented with specifics, dates, dollar amounts, um, so you don't run into issues or, um, you know, Misunderstandings, and I'm using air quotes here, (laughs) um, for for someone you know suddenly seeing some assets in a joint checking account disappear because they you didn't get that in writing.
0: And when you say in writing, I mean that can also just be like an email. I've watched enough Judge Judy to know that an email (laughs) can actually really change your circumstances.
2: Yes, it's important to have some kind of documentation that you can fall back on. Obviously, when you're Talking about the more formal things, you'll want to get that in a more formalized manner. But yes, having something, even an email, um, in many cases will suffice.
0: All right, let's move on to your fourth point, which is to have a divorce makeover. Woo-hoo. Hey, get back out there, <laughs> hop on Tinder, start swiping.
2: Yeah, not quite that fun. So it's not a fun uh, queer eye makeover, but a uh, uh, financial uh, divorce makeover. So, um, you know, you're, when you're married, your financial life is obviously going to be very intertwined um, with that of your spouse. And that's going to vary from from couple to couple. Um, but extracting yourself from that uh, that being intertwined does take some work you <laughs> And I find that there are some things that people tend to do upfront, kind of to get, as I said, to the D day things, you logistical things you need to do to uh, finalize everything. But then there's also other things that tend to fall by the wayside that can get pushed off. I'll deal with it later. Uh, and you really need to take care of, of both um, sets of those items. So, kind of the things that you would do along the way, you're going to be opening accounts and uh, you know bank accounts, investment accounts in your own name. Um, you'll be you know keeping an eye. On uh, joint accounts, maybe freezing joint accounts uh, during the divorce process to make sure there are no um, mysterious withdrawals. Um, closing those joint accounts um, if you don't have credit established in your own name, you're going to want to do that as soon as possible. Uh, makes sense to check in on your credit score as well. Um, so those are the kinds of things that people tend to do um, right away to get the thing to get the divorce finalized. Um, there are other things that are um, more important, I think, that people tend to let fall by the wayside. And they can range from very small things, um, for example, changing your passwords. Um, if you have online banking, um, once you have all of that um, separated into individual accounts, um, you're going to want to um, change that password, even just your your Netflix password. Mm. Um, That's something to to consider as well. Um, Probably one of the most important things that you'll need to do is update your estate plan. Um, So things like your will, advanced medical directive, power of attorney. If you've got your spouse uh, listed on those documents, you're going to want to make updates. Um, Changing beneficiaries in all of your investment accounts. Um, Any uh, you know, bank accounts that have a transfer on death designation, um, 401K, IRAs, um, pensions and annuities, even if you're not currently uh, collecting them, um, they're most likely going to have your spouse as a beneficiary. So you're going to want to update that, uh, change that to, you know, a child or another family member. Um, Same so with life
1: insurance policies and yep. stuff like that. Yeah,
2: that was the next going to be the next words out of my mouth. Was life insurance uh, to update those beneficiaries? So un- unless you uh, you know don't care if your ex spouse collects if you kick the bucket, um, <laughs> you know definitely get that uh, updated. Uh, and there's also some um, you know. Consider the the tax ramifications um, of your change in status. So, how you're filing taxes is going to change. Most likely, you'll have been filing um, married filing jointly, and that's going to change to most likely single or head of household. Um, so, you may want to review the withholdings on your paycheck with your employer. You may need to file an updated W-4, uh, and also um, be aware of how you're going to file your taxes. Um, if you have your custody of any children, more than um, from more than half of the year, you could potentially file as head of household, and that's going to be more advantageous. Uh, you'll be taxed a little bit lower rate, higher standard deduction. Um, I know of uh, one individual who divorced, had custody of his children about 75-80% of the time. He worked in finance, so he had always done uh, his family's taxes, continued to do them filing single after the divorce. Uh, eventually, after a couple years, decided to offload that to an accountant, and the accountant said. Hey, you could have been filing as head of household this whole time and saving a significant amount on taxes. So, you know, make sure that you have the the correct filing status for your updated situation.
0: All right. And when should you get professional help?
2: Um, that depends. Um, it's probably never too soon to do that. So kind of as part of the issue of your um, you know, divorce uh, makeover, um, don't be afraid to loop in financial professionals. Um, so you may already have a lawyer that you're working with. Uh, don't be afraid to um, include an, an accountant or a financial planner uh, to take a, a bigger, more comprehensive look at your overall financial picture and, and importantly, how that's going to change. Uh, and there are actually um, planners out there that have uh, Certified Divorce Financial Analyst status. That Those are not letters I have after my name. Um, <laughs> but that those are individuals that are specifically trained in financial matters relating to divorce. So it may make sense to, to seek out someone with that designation if, you're, if, if you have that need.
1: Because really, divorce changes a lot of things, right? If you had a financial plan while you were married, it was based on all kinds of things like your living expenses, how much you had in your 401K, how much you're going to get from Social Security, then you get divorced and it's all different, right? Your living expenses have changed. Your retirement assets have probably been split. Social Security, you know, you can get it based on your record or your spouse's record if you've been married for 10 years. So if you haven't been, that changes things, too. And if you're going to get a benefit based on your spouse's record, but then you get remarried, that could change things, too. So I think seeing a financial professional who knows all the ins and outs of that stuff is very helpful.
2: Absolutely.
0: All right. And your final piece of advice, and we touched about on this at the top of the show, was to not neglect your emotional well-being as well.
2: Yes. So this is a a non-financial related tip, but I think it kind of loops into the whole uh, holistic idea. Um, And I think that's important to make sure that your uh, emotional side is is nourished and taken care of as well. So that's having a good uh, support system in place, whether that's a network of friends and family um, that can be there for you. Uh, And also, I would add advocate for potentially talking to a therapist or a counselor. I know some people, you know, think there's some kind of stigma on that. Um, I think especially men are more reluctant to seek out that kind of help. Um, but I would encourage anyone um, you know, dealing with a divorce, because there's, there's going to be emotions and feelings there. No, in the, even in the best of cases and how amicable things are, uh, you're going to have some um, strong feelings about the whole process. So it really makes sense to have an outlet where you can deal with that, because um, that kind of loops, loops back into my first point of, of looking at this as a business transaction. So if you have an outlet where you can process those feelings, deal with those emotions, then you can kind of come to the negotiating table and deal with lawyers, deal with uh, your spouse a little bit more logically and clear headed. Um, you know, it, divorce is always going to be difficult uh, in some way, but you know, there are steps you can take to, you know, make it a little bit easier, a little bit more humane on everyone involved, uh, you know, and hopefully come through the other end as as unscathed yeah. emotionally and financially as possible.
0: Yeah, here at the Motley Fool, if you are a woman who has gone through a divorce, then it will eventually be your turn to guide another woman here at the Motley Fool through a divorce. Like, it's like this torch that has been passed down for for a very long time at the Motley Fool. And they all use the same lawyer, and it all works. (laughs) And they're all here for each other. Like, it's a sign of how how close this company is that we're all like, yes, we're on your team. Coworkers are here for you. Um, All right, so where should people go for more information?
2: Um, There are a lot of online resources. A couple things I would recommend, um, if you are looking for a lawyer, a good place for referrals would be your state and local bar association. They might be able to provide some good recommendations. Um, I mentioned earlier there's Certified Divorce Financial Analyst. Um, So the Institute for Divorce Financial Analysts uh, is the institution that heads up um, that designation. So you can find them online at uh, institutedfa.com. And one other resource um, that I Um, found useful, and I think other people found useful um, in in doing my research, um, is a book called Crazy Time, Surviving Divorce and Building a New Life by Abigail Trafford. Um, Again, you know, take everything with a grain of salt. Your situation is going to be unique. um, But I think this is one book that, um, you know, lets you know that you're not alone, What you have dealt with, other people have dealt with as well. um, And it's definitely, I think, a good resource um, for, for a lot of people in the process.
0: All right, Amanda, thank you so much for joining us. But I want you to stick around, because you talked to us about how to have an amicable divorce, and I'm going to talk about a very unamicable divorce. Amicable. Whatever. You know what I'm talking about.
1: Subamina Goofball. Subamina
0: <laughs> <laughs> Goofball. Our sister company, Motley Fool Wealth Management, is a registered investment advisor that can help put your financial plan and investing needs in the context of your big life transitions. If you've enjoyed learning from Amanda or the other Motley Fool Wealth Management planners we've had on the show, guess what? You can get more of them in your life. Visit foolwealth.com. radio. At FullWealth.com slash radio, you can find podcast notes and resources and even book a no-obligation appointment with Amanda or another planner you've probably heard on the show. Please consider the risk, costs, and suitability of investments before choosing any investment professionals. All investments involve risk and may lose money. Molly Fool Wealth Management does not guarantee the results of any of its advice or account management. All right, so Amanda, you offered advice on how to have an amicable split up. Um, and so while I was researching what should we do for our fun segment, and by fun it's like, oh, we're talking about divorce, so how much fun can we really have here? But I stumbled across this insane story of Kirk Kikorian, the billionaire, and his wife, Lisa Bonder. Are you familiar
1: with this? I am not at no? all.
0: Great. So we're going to see how well you can guess. Rick, do you want to make guesses too? We'll see. Okay, here we go. All right. So, Kirk Kerkorian, and I think I'm saying his name right, is truly a self-made man. He was born to poor Armenian immigrants. He dropped out of school in eighth grade. He eventually became a pilot and later a savvy businessman. How savvy? Well, he made his billions, most notably through the company MGM. Uh, he was basically a Las Vegas hotel magnate, um, and he was known as the king of the Las Vegas Strip. So, kind of a big deal. Uh, of course, and then MGM also is a studio. He was a very avid... Um, tennis player. And so it was on the courts that in 1986, he met Lisa Bonder, a pro tennis player, and he convinced her to leave her husband. So for more than 10 years, she was his companion, but he refused to marry her, saying that he was happily unmarried. But then things changed. Lisa told Kikorian that she was pregnant and that he was the father, but he had his doubts. Why was that? He had a vasectomy. Ooh, that's a good guess.
1: Uh, Yeah, uh, it was before the days of the little blue pill. I don't know.
0: So while Lisa was in her 30s, he was 48 years older, and at 81 years old he figured his swimmers had long stopped swimming. But he kept quiet about it. Kikorian was still reticent to get married, but he finally gave in after Lisa said she wanted to legitimize the child. He said, "Okay, okay, we can get married, but on one condition. What was it?
1: Well, I'm going to say prenup, but that's too boring.
0: Yeah,
2: that was what I was gonna say. Um, she stopped playing tennis. Oh.
0: He said, Yes, we can get married on one condition that we get divorced in twenty eight days and you waive all spousal support. Well so kind of a prenup. But he's like, Yeah, we'll get married, but we're getting divorced twenty eight days later. That's like
1: a pre divorce or something. <laughs> yeah.
0: So baby Kira was born in May. Kikorian and Bonder were married in August and then divorced twenty eight days twenty eight days later. So, Lisa Bonder wasn't going to get any spousal support, but think about the baby! She took Kikorian to court asking for $320,000 a month in child support, or $3.8 million a year, to keep Kira in the lifestyle she had grown accustomed to in her three short years on Earth. At the time, this was by far a new record in child support. What kind of lifestyle, you ask? Well, for example, for Kira's first birthday at the Hotel Bel Air, it cost $70,000 for how many guests?
1: 500.
0: Uh, 501. <laughs> Three. <laughs> ah, Rick was closer. 50. What? That was it. 20 kids and 30 adults. A $70,000 birthday Holy party. Wow. Can I just take the money and, like, <laughs> wow, for real? All right, so how does a 3-year-old spend 320,000 a month anyway? According to documents filed by Lisa Bonder with the court, put these in order of expense from highest to lowest. Toys, travel, pets. What order most most highest expense to lowest?
1: I want to say pets is number 1, but I'm going to go with travel, toys and pets.
2: All right, I'll then I'll, I'll do something different. I'll say toys, pets, travel.
1: Pets travel toys. There we go.
2: <laughs> well, Bro
0: was right. The baby, the three-year-old, needed $144,000 a month for travel. Aye, aye, aye. For toys, just $1,000. And $436 for bunnies and other pets. What, what about all the other money? Well, 14000 a month for parties and playdates. $7,000 for charity. This is a very philanthropic three-year-old. What a good kid! Forty-three hundred for food, plus another fifty-nine hundred to eat out, twenty-five hundred for movies and other outings, fourteen hundred for laundry and cleaning. So yeah, the judge granted her fifty thousand a month. So not exactly what she asked for, but still, that's pretty, a, pretty that's, nice. That's not bad. From what I can tell, uh, she kept coming back from war and taking him to court regularly. Later, asking for a hundred thousand a month. And eventually, Kikorian's lawyer decided to get creative in figuring out the truth of the kid's paternity by hiring a private investigator named Anthony Pelicano. 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 Sure. He was known as the Hollywood fixer. Mm. So Kikorian suspected that the real father was a film producer named Steve Bing. So Pelicano wiretapped Lisa's phones and even went so far as to steal dental floss from Bing's hotel trash can. Pelicano later went to prison for three years for doing this and other illegal stuff for celebrities, including Steven Seagal. Anyway, it turns out Bing was the father. But in an ironic turn, he had also paid the P.I., Anthony Pelicano, over $300,000 to figure out if he was the father of what British actress models. Yeah, baby. That's my hint for you.
1: Well, so it's Austin Powers. So it's... I can't remember her name. I, know, I, I I can visualize her. I can't remember her name. And she's still in great shape.
0: She's a mm, a blank. No one remembers her name? Elizabeth Hurley. There you go. He yeah. grants
1: Old Flame.
0: Yeah. So this guy um, paid... So the same P.I. that was investigating him to find out if he was Korian's actual baby daddy was actually paying... The same PI to figure out who Elizabeth Hurley's real baby daddy was. He was the baby's daddy in both cases. Wow, so weird, right? Okay, (laughs) what a ride. So, where are they all today? Well, Kikorian died in 2015, just nine days after his 98th birthday. He bequeathed most of his billion-dollar estate to charity. Isn't that nice? Yeah. Despite his death his child support battle waged on. Kira turned 18 a year after his death and was set to receive a $7 million trust fund, even though they already established that she wasn't his kid. Hmm. But whatever, she sued, and then she received another $1.5 million on top of the $7 million. No idea why. Again, not his kid. Um, We didn't even get to talk around about Kikorian's fourth wife. Yes, that's right. He got married in 2014, a year before his death. Their marriage lasted 57 days. And this woman was set to receive about 10 million, uh, but she sued for more, settling for about 12.5 million. Uh, And I don't know what the moral of the story is. It's just crazy, right? I mean, all of these people just suing each other for money and being miserable for decades. I mean, this fight went on for decades and decades and decades. So maybe the moral is just don't be a billionaire? I don't
2: know.
1: Priorities. Priorities.
0: Choose your spouses carefully. I I
1: think that that is the lesson. Many many wealthy people when they're asked what's the number one piece of advice somewhere in the top 5 is make sure you get the right spouse. Makes all the difference in the world.
0: Yeah. There you go. All right. So you guys did kind of okay. I'm guessing the facts sure. of that story, but it was a little crazy of it a was. Story. It was a little crazy. Yeah. <laughs> That's
2: a lifetime TV movie. <laughs> that
0: it really it just and then you're suddenly like Steven Seagal in this. What? Who's, what? Where is this going? It's crazy. All right, well, <laughs> that's the show. Amanda, thank you again for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. The show is edited amicably. That's by what right I random. was gonna suggest. <laughs> <laughs> Our email is answers at fool.com. Again, if you want to learn more about Motley Fool Wealth, you can head to foolwealth.com slash radio. For Robert Brokamp and Amanda Kish, I'm Alison Southwick. Stay foolish, everybody.